the inverted nuns, the brackets warn us, that in one moment Jewish history can be reversed, regressed, turned back, its dreams deferred. But the corollary is that in one moment, destiny can also be righted. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 44, The Mysterious Parentheses in the Torah Scroll. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. People are passionate about punctuation. Many debate whether or not to make use of the Oxford comma and the fervent love of didactic discussions about properly placed dashes and semicolons was reflected in the runaway success of Lynn Truss's book, Eats, Shoots, and Leaves. In my research for today's talk, I even discovered that there is a book titled, But I Digress, The Exploitation of Parentheses in English Printed Verse by John Lennard. And Amazon further informs me that, quote, for three centuries, grammarians have argued about the necessity of parentheses, while some consider them subordinate, additional, irrelevant, and even damaging to the clarity of argument. Leonard's history explores how writers such as Marlowe, Swift, Coleridge, Browning, Derek Walcott, and E. Cummings use them in their work as vehicles for pointing dramatic gesture, controlling tone, adding humor, and intensifying satire, in addition to contributing to the clarity of the argument, end quote. Ladies and gentlemen, an entire book on the parentheses. This is apt inspiration for considering precision and punctuation in the Hebrew Bible. On the one hand, for a Torah scroll to be considered kosher, valid for reading in synagogue, every single letter must be in its proper place. Even one out of position or missing renders the Torah invalid. On the other hand, as every bar mitzvah has to learn, the traditional inscription of the Hebrew Bible upon parchment contains no punctuation of any kind. That must be memorized. But there is one exception. Several sentences in the Torah are surrounded by what can be termed biblical brackets. And the meaning of these marks lies in a turning point in Jewish history. This we know thanks to one of the most creative, insightful, and revelatory Torah lectures given in the 20th century. What follows immediately after the Bible's discussion of the inauguration of the altar and the menorah is a series of stories that at first blush seem to have nothing to do with one another. The sanctification of the Levites, the bringing of the Paschal Lamb in the wilderness, a discussion between Moses and his father-in-law, the journeying of the ark. But even more enigmatic is what surrounds the verses that focus on this latter subject. The words of the passage are as follows. Chapter 10, verse 35. And it came to pass when the ark set forward that Moses said, Rise up, O Lord, and let thine enemies be scattered, and them that hate thee flee before thee. And when it rested, he said, Return, O Lord, unto the ten thousands of the families of Israel. It is a simple enough set of sentences, two in all, known to many, for it being referenced in Ashkenazic liturgy as the Torah scroll is escorted from the ark in the synagogue. And yet, if you look at the way these words are written in the scribal text, the traditional method of inscription, you will see that they are surrounded on each side by a strange sort of parentheses, an inverted Hebrew letter, a nun, turned around, one at the beginning and the other at the end of these verses. So they are sort of brackets for the passage. Incredibly, one explanation in the Talmud is that these brackets exist to show that these sentences are out of place. But to read the Talmudic statement literally is impossible, for, as we have said, every letter in the Torah is meant to be in its proper place. What then could this mean? 
1977, Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik delivered one of his most famous and beloved Torah talks following the Shabbat, where these verses were read as part of the portion or parasha of that week. He had been pondering, Rabbi Soloveitchik reflected, the link between the seeming non sequiturs in the Torah portion. To his audience, he said, quote, Whoever writes a composition paper in first-year English knows that there must be unity. Unity is when a theme is developed. Prima facie, there is no development of anything, and there is no literary unity. There are many stories. But each story per se is half a story, not a complete story. End quote. For those interested, we have sent along a link to the original lecture. For a while here, I will attempt to summarize and elucidate what Rabbi Soloveitchik said. Nothing comes close to the drama of Rabbi Soloveitchik's own presentation, a drama that is enhanced by the fact that this was the elaboration on an idea that Rabbi Soloveitchik had himself just hit upon, revealing thereby a man in his 70s who was still constantly presenting incredibly creative and brilliant exegetical insights, a scholar who never ceases to study, to offer new ideas, to seek solutions to ancient enigmas. Or, as he put it in his talk, quote, Whatever I tell you tonight occurred to me during the Torah reading on Shabbat. It's completely new, so you won't find it anywhere. No one plagiarized me yet. I'm just reviewing my thoughts to you tonight for the first time, end quote. We have also sent you a link to a transcript of the talk compiled by Yitzchak Eitz Shalom, to whom I'm enormously grateful for this work. For my Soloveitchik, all of the stories in these passages must be seen through one central prism, the assumption by Moses and Israel that the promise on the eve of the Exodus is about to be now fulfilled, that Israel will enter the land and Abraham's covenant with God, forged centuries before, will now be fully reified and realized. The tabernacle by this point has been completed and inaugurated, the priests have been dedicated, and the laws of the altar offerings have been laid out. Now we read how the Levites are sanctified to assist the Kohanim, the priests. Then, as the anniversary of the Exodus is marked, the Paschal Lamb is offered and remembered. And all understand that this presages God's original promises in Exodus chapter 6. I will bring you out from the burdens of the Egyptians, I will deliver you from their bondage, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. And the Almighty concludes there in Exodus, and I will bring you into the land concerning which I lifted up my hand to give it to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Thus, marking Passover, or Pesach more accurately, hearkens the culmination of the redemption process through the arrival in the land of Israel. And then Moses addresses the man, who according to the rabbis is identical with the Jethro of Midian that we have already met. Chapter 10, verse 29. And Moses said unto Chovav the son of Reuel the Midianite, Moses' father-in-law, We are journeying unto the place of which the Lord said, I will give it to you. Come thou with us, and we will do thee good. These words indicate, as Rabbi Soloveitchik argues, that, quote, Moshe was certain, there was not even a shadow of doubt in his mind, that he was going to enter the promised land, end quote. And Rabbi Soloveitchik adds that, quote, he was sure, he was convinced, that he would see the beautiful land, the hills of Judea, the prairie land of the Sharon Valley, he was certain that he will climb the Mount of Lebanon, end quote. Rabbi Soloveitchik is convinced that had this truly come to pass, had all gone right, had Israel immediately entered the land and Moses with them, then not only would all of Jewish history have been different, but in a certain sense the messianic eschatological destiny of Israel would have been fully achieved. 
And as Rabbi Soloveitchik notes, Moses' eager outreach to his non-Israelite father-in-law reflects the fact that this destiny, this redemption, is in the end open not only to descendants of Israel, but rather it is open to all who will join Israel in this destiny, a redemption that Moses believes is imminent. And thus the journey begins in verse 33. And they set forward from the mount of the Lord three days' journey, and the ark of the covenant of the Lord went before them in the three days' journey to seek out a resting place for them. And it is at this point, ladies and gentlemen, that the verses under our investigation, the words surrounded by the inverted letters, the description of the traveling of the ark actually appears. The ark moves, it is going, it leads the way. Arise, O Lord, says Moses, let your enemies be scattered. By which Moses means that the conquest of the land is imminent. We are, in other words, for Rabbi Soloveitchik, supposed to sense a heightened expectation and eagerness and excitement. The ark is traveling, Moses is traveling, Israel is traveling, the Holy Land is ahead, Jewish history is coming toward its conclusion. Or in Rabbi Soloveitchik's words, quote, all conditions were met, the reward is about to be granted, finally the promise to Abraham is about to be fulfilled, end quote. But it is not to be. Murmurs and complaints break forth from the people. The Lord's anger is ignited against them. And then, one of the most striking sins in the entire Torah takes place, a desire and demand for meat. Chapter 11, verse 4. And the mixed multitude that was among them fell to lusting, and the children of Israel also wept and said, Would that we were given meat to eat! We remember the fish which we were wont to eat in Egypt for free, the cucumbers and melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic, but now our soul is dried always. There is nothing at all. We have nothing save this manna to look to. Understanding all that has gone before allows us to painfully ponder the awful audacity of this exclamation. The promised portion of Abraham lies around the bend. And all Israel can say is, in the words of the famous Wendy's commercial, where's the beef? For Rabbi Soloveitchik, this hedonistic hollering is not merely a moment of weakness. It is an embrace and embodiment of paganism. For in the pagan impulse, Rabbi Soloveitchik explains, there is actually two separate sins. There is the worship of beings and objects that are not God, but hedonism is central to paganism as well. As he says, quote, in this day and age, we know that it's possible for people to live like pagans, even though no idolatry is involved, end quote. Rabbi Soloveitchik further explains, quote, what is the pagan way of life in contradistinction to the Torah way of life? The pagan cries for variety, for boundlessness, for unlimited lust and insatiable desire. The demonic dream of total conquest of drinking the cup of pleasure to its dregs. End quote. And the Torah Rabbi Soloveitchik added, quote, hated the pagan way of life more than it hated the idol. This then for Rabbi Soloveitchik is a pagan sin. God replies to Israel's demand that indeed meat will be given to them more than they desire. Verse 19. He shall not eat one day, nor two days, nor five days, neither ten days, nor twenty days, but a whole month, until it come out of your nostrils, and it be loathsome unto you. For ye have rejected the Lord who is among you, and have troubled him with weeping, saying, Why now came we forth out of Egypt? A flock of quail descends, the people seize and eat. Verse 33. While the flesh was yet between their teeth, ere it was chewed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord smote the people with a very great plague. During this episode, Moses expresses despondency, and another 70 men are selected to help Moses bear the burden of leadership. The scriptural shift from excitement to desolation is immediate, and one senses that the entire mood of the book of Numbers has been turned around. 
It will not be till the tale of the sin of the spies that Israel's wandering in the desert for 40 years will be decreed. But it is at this point that things truly start to go wrong. And this, Rabbi Soloveitchik said, is the meaning of the Talmudic explanation of the biblical brackets. To say that the verses about the ark are out of place is to say that the ark's intended journey was undone. The land was not immediately entered, and Jewish history itself took a different path. Like the brackets, the two Hebrew letters that were turned around, reversed, the Jewish history to the Holy Land was itself inverted. That is the metaphor that the Talmud seeks to express. In one moment, history was changed. Speaking of this parasha, this Torah portion, speaking of all these stories which are read on a single Sabbath, Rabbi Soloveitchik said, quote, The parasha is one story, one tragic story, a tragic story which changes Jewish history completely from top to bottom. The inverted nuns symbolize an inverted historical process here, end quote. Thus, two backward letters testify to the great inversion in the Jewish story. But inspiration can be taken also from this tragic tale. For just as one failure at the brink of triumph can invert all that was intended, so can the courage of one man or one leader or several or of a people at a time of disaster turn Israel back toward its destiny. For consider, ladies and gentlemen, Rabbi Soloveitchik himself rose to leadership in America at a time when the entire religious world that he had known in Europe was being destroyed. And he and other great rabbis in America dedicated themselves to perpetuating the Judaism that they bore from previous generations. Meanwhile, Jews in Israel, following the lowest moment since the destruction of Jerusalem, seized the ring of Jewish destiny and brought a Jewish state into being. The inverted nuns, the brackets, warn us that in one moment Jewish history can be reversed, regressed, turned back, its dreams deferred. But the corollary is that in one moment, destiny can also be righted. We believe that there were many moments of failure that set Jewish history back profoundly, but we also believe that there were moments of powerful, positive inversion toward Jewish destiny. Those moments could come from great rabbis or from statesmen placed in powerful positions or, amazingly and miraculously, from Jews who had been estranged from their people and all of a sudden burst forth as a leader when Jewish history needed them most. The decision of Yochanan ben Zakkai to create an academy in Yavne as Jerusalem fell saved rabbinic Judaism forever. Esther, in the palace of Persia, strode into a tyrant's throne room and preserved the people. In Basel in 1897, Theodore Herzl convened a Zionist Congress and wrote in his room, quote, At Basel I founded the Jewish state. If I said this out loud today, I would be greeted by universal laughter. In five years, perhaps, and certainly in 50 years everyone will perceive it, end quote. He was right. One great failure can invert Jewish history to disaster, but one great visionary act can turn it to triumph. Thus, the two small inverted nuns, the biblical brackets, can be a source of both dismay and inspiration. I thought, ladies and gentlemen, originally as I prepared this talk, of buying that book about parentheses on Amazon in order to help with my research. But a new copy, as far as I could see, costs $301. And though I work hard on these presentations, I have my limits. But the truth is that one need not read a complete history of this punctuation mark in order to find the most important parentheses 
in the history of the world. They are here in our biblical passage. A reminder forever that one moment can turn history around and that in one moment, Jews can rediscover their destiny. This is Mayor Soloveitchik. Looking forward to learning together tomorrow. Signing off.